what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. Sometimes reaching out a hand and meeting that person who's suffering halfway looked more like finding something actionable that you could do for them. All right. Welcome back to Meet Bridget. It's Kashia, COO and host of the Meet Bridget podcast. Together with my best friend, Asha Gabriel, I help run a confidence and communication platform for teen girls called Bridget. We are back again this week with part two of our two-part series on mental health. For those of you who have not listened yet, please go back and listen to part one where we talk about some of the stigmatization and definitions around mental health. We talk about, you know, some of the issues that we think are current in society. You know, we talk a little bit about the pandemic and and post-pandemic, you know, mindset. And we talk a lot about our experiences as parents, as daughters, as, you know, partners. So this week, we want to transition a little bit more into a little Q&A. We asked some of our listeners what they thought, what they'd like to hear, you know, the things that they felt were really salient and pertinent to their mental health journeys and questions they might have. And so we wanted to just take a little time to address those today. So we're back. Hi, Ashi. Hi, this is again, Asha Gabriel and CEO of Bridget and co-host with my bestie, Kashia. We had so much fun um, with part one of this episode. Again, this is a new format for us, and uh, we're really just approaching them conversationally as if we were talking with each other on the phone, because we do regularly as friends. We talk about all these different topics, and we just wanted to bring you into that fold and welcome you to a conversation. And as always, we love when you share your questions with us and participate in that conversation. We're about communication. Um, So we are so excited to get some questions on this topic. But again, I I had a disclaimer on uh, episode part one, but again, as a disclaimer, we'll likely be candidly discussing issues including suicide, depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. And if any of these things are triggering to you at this time, please, please feel free to sit this episode out or to see our show notes for resources. Additionally, uh, this conversation is sourced and biased by our own personal experiences. Our hope is just that if you find yourself or someone you love struggling, you won't feel alone, and maybe you'll even feel empowered to utilize the resources we cite throughout our episode. So our little disclaimer there, we are talking about some pretty difficult, often, topics, uh, candidly, as we always do. So let's dive right in with some of our questions. We've really touched on a lot of these things, and I think... One thing I'm really excited about, and you said it in our intro, is that we are obsessed with communication and none of these things are done perfectly and we're clearly not experts nor claiming to be. You know, we said in our last episode, this is not meant to be a clinical resource. It's meant to be a narrative. So we want we want it to feel like you're in a safe space with friends because you are. And um, again, like Asha said, these are biased by personal opinions. but. It always strikes me as so beautiful and wonderful that 
for everything we talk about, it really does seem to come back around full circle to the idea of communication. And I think this topic of mental health is no different. It's about communicating early and often with yourself, with your peers, with a therapist if need be, or with resources. So I just wanted to say thank you for making that point, Asha. These, I think, we'll just go through rapid fire because I'm sure we'll kind of, you know, spend a little time talking about each of these points. But one of the things that our girls were asking about is time management as it applies to your workload, self-care, family, and how sometimes you can feel guilty choosing where to spend your free time. This really resonates with me a lot. I think life consistently gets busier. The fuller your life gets, and I, I think that we can both say we are blessed and lucky to have full lives, not for lack of, you know, doing a lot of work, but the fuller your life gets, I, I do feel like the less and less free time you end up having, especially now as a parent, this is not going to come as any surprise, but having a young child makes it difficult to have a broad and diverse social calendar or to stay on top of every friendship that I've had in the same, you know, at the same caliber I might have been before, you know, even with family members. So I definitely feel guilty spreading myself out thin. What about you? I mean, I I definitely do too. I think you made such a good point though about like the more full your life gets every moment of your time has more of an opportunity cost. Like I think Mm -hmm. we talked about this in one of our progenomologies that back one of like the OG ones, but like your opportunity cost, there is your time becomes more expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think that taking a moment to actually acknowledge that that's a good thing, like having that feeling of like, I have no free time is actually a really good thing. That means that your life is, is full of a lot of useful things for Mm -hmm. you. You know, like there are people that, that want you that have that think you are valuable to their businesses or to their lives or relationships or whatever it is but i think at the same point the more fullness you have going on the more essential it is to also schedule that free time as a non-negotiable you know and i think that particularly with women i think that we have this need to like apologize for saying no to things, especially if we're saying no for something that's just like a personal need. Like I remember in in past jobs, like literally having like apologizing because I like I urgently had to go to the dentist, you know, <laughs> or like things like that where I'm like, this is not even like I'm not like taking myself to the spa. Like I'm having a medical emergency. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm apologizing to my job. And it's like we just are so conditioned that it's like you're even just needing to like sit outside by yourself for 20 minutes, you know, when you're having a hard day with your family life or whatever it is, like taking that time for yourself to take care of yourself, filling up your cup before you're pouring out to everybody else is something that you actually, with the more full your life gets, the more you have to schedule and protect Mm -hmm. that time. And I think that this is something I actively have to practice is to not apologize you don't need to apologize for it. I think that you can say like, really the next time that something comes up and you're like, no, I really don't want to do that. Or I don't have the time for it. Just saying like, unfortunately, I don't have time for that right now. Or or, unfortunately that time, you know, is not going to work. How about this one next week? 
it's okay to not say, I'm so sorry, this is not going to work out for us. Like we just get so used to that. And I think that it, it programs your mind to think that like you don't deserve that time. Which yeah. Is absolutely. Or nice. that you're doing something wrong. This reminds me of something, again, actually a therapist told me. She reminded me there was a time that there was a lot of family stuff going on and I was taking on a lot of pressure as the oldest daughter. I don't even think my siblings realize like how in the middle of things I can become and then I also become the point person for my extended families like my mom's sisters and she has five of them and her brothers. She has two of them. So it becomes like there's a lot of, you know, whenever something's happening in my family, it becomes this big, big thing. It like proliferates amongst itself. And I've had to learn how to pare down the expectations. And a lot of it is not really like the individual family members that are reaching out to, to me. A lot of it has been paring down the expectations itself because I recognize and realize that like the guilt that you feel or the, you know, feelings of having to say sorry are self-imposed. And in a lot of ways, I was putting pressure on myself to be the person for everybody or to do all of the things. Because in my head, you know, as reformed perfectionist, you know, you tell yourself, or at least I've told myself, I can get A to Z done all in one day and do it perfectly. Again, as life gets fuller, you recognize that they're like, it's compromise. You have to compromise your time. It doesn't mean that by compromising your time that you're less valuable or less loved or, you know, less deserving. But it does mean that you aren't making responsible choices in order to maintain your own sanity. And the part that the that the therapist said that I thought really resonated was I was talking to her about one such situation. And she reminded me, you keep saying you need to be there for your family. But your family is now your son and your husband. And of course I knew that, but just having somebody say that reminded me, oh yeah, the circle I actually need to focus on first is so much smaller than what yes. I'm like putting myself in the line of fire for right now. And it's not because I don't love everyone, but it is because if I don't take care of myself and don't take care of the two people who are my immediate family, my son and then my husband, there's no way in hell anyone else is going to get, yes. you know, a reasonable part of me or a whole part of me because I won't be whole. You know, taking a moment to step back and recognize that in myself and identify where it starts and where that that central person is, you know, and if you're, you're not a mom and if you're not married yet, it still needs to start at you within yourself before you can start branching out into taking care of everybody else. Yeah. I think that in like a work setting, um, I think it can also be translated. You know, I had to really like understand what this meant, but managing expectations was how it mm. was kind of said to me. And I'm kind of a person that has had an issue with over-promising, over-committing myself and just being like, I'm going to set the bar high so that I have to like then go get it, you know? And sometimes that works, but it actually, when you are working with other people, um, if you over-commit yourself and over-promise and you actually then do a stellar job, but you don't quite get that crazy thing that you promised, 
it still comes across to whoever you communicated with that you didn't quite achieve what you said you were going to. Mm -hmm. And you can see that over and over and over again. And people actually don't think you're doing enough, you know, where it's like, it would be so much more productive to actually under promise, not just say, here's what I'm going to do and then hit it, but actually kind of under promise and, and take into account your personal limits, your own boundaries, your expectations about how things might go under promise. And then and then hopefully over deliver or at least deliver, you know, at worst, which is when you're really underperforming, that that is actually so much, so much more powerful. And it's actually so much more sustainable for you too to take that moment, assess what really can be done. And if there is a boundary or a limit or something that's going on, you don't always have to explain it, but taking it into account and holding it for yourself or for your business or what have you, that it's just, it it was so counterintuitive for me to even like wrap my head around uh, what that meant. But that was like a big learning from like most, my fin- finance job, you know, I'm like, it takes a business speak of like, oh, over, you know, under promise, over deliver and managing expectations and managing up and all these things. But it, it's so applicable, I think, in in so many ways, even in like our friendships and our relationships. I think that like setting a boundary respectfully and without anger and without resistance, just being like, I wish, you know, I had the bandwidth to do this, this and this to plan your bachelorette or to manage this issue with my family. I wish I had that bandwidth right now. And I just don't, but I can do this. And here's the timeline for how I'm going to get that done or whatever it is that it's just like holding that. Yep. Just managing expectations, but also staying true to yourself and the things that you need to take care of within yourself. I actually was speaking with a a local coach recently. Her name's Angie Wisdom, actually, because we always like to shout out um, women doing awesome things. Name's Angie Wisdom. She's a uh, popular life and business coach, Um, but she has like a, a morning mindset journal, which I love because it starts by not just jumping into what you're doing on a daily basis, but it starts with you sitting down and identifying your values and like really going deep, like not just like, oh, I like to get a workout in. Like, no, like like my health and vitality is like a value. What are your other values? Like, you know, for me, I, I realized through going through this process, I'm like, I need like adventure and novelty. I need that in my everyday you know, and if I don't have that, I'm going to start feeling like I'm not fulfilled. I also need like my family time is precious. Like I need to have like real present time with my family every day, you know, and and understanding your values, I think also helps you filter when it's like, okay, is this thing that's trying to take my time? Is it something that like fits with my values or is it something that's totally misaligned with my values, in which case it makes it easier for me to say no to it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but taking down, like really having an assessment of your your own personal values that will help you like find like the highest and best use of your time. I love that so much. What are some of your values? Oh, family time is definitely, especially now and immediate family time, because I yeah. think that I've been a chronic overachiever you know, like you can totally relate to this, but just needing to do all of the things all at once, be everywhere all the time. You know, one of the gifts that becoming a mom has given me is that it forced me to focus first on 
being present in my own body. That was gift number one. So being present in my own body and doing the things that I needed to do to sustain myself because I had to and had to be that for the tiny person I was growing. And then now that he's here, it's really similar. It's like now I have to compartmentalize, you know, my goals because the goals are still wide and far reaching. But there's this like meta goal of creating a life and creating a sustainable life and a beautiful life and one where my son can grow up with the things that I value, you know, laughter, art, creativity, you know, learning to create space and time for that has been a really beautiful thing that I've like really been focusing on for that. Similarly, it's like it it makes it easier to say no or to say, yeah, I can do this at this time, but I am not available at this time. I've started not taking phone calls after six o'clock unless they're scheduled, you know, and like just putting my phone away because from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you know, if I'm on my phone, then I have to have like a hard stop and a hard cutoff picking days that I can like work from home with my son, which is kind of a luxury um, or not kind of. It's definitely a luxury. Not everybody can do that, but I'm grateful that I can. Just taking time to focus on family, I think has been a really big thing. And I want to kind of circumvent that by saying like, by giving myself that time to be present, it's also benefiting me and taking my time and focusing it on, you know, something really precious, which is, you know, time and time that you won't get back. Exactly. Okay. And in in line with the topic of mental health and life, just sometimes having ups and downs and getting a little messy, that part of our episode, we started this episode recording and, and life happened. We both have very young children that take up a good amount of our mental capacity and <laughs> she had to run um, to take care of her sweet little one. So this is just all part of, you know, working together with someone. I think that, you know, mental health is something obviously that we experience on an individual level, but I think there is such a powerful place for good community and support. And I think that Keish and I, throughout our years working together, you know, I think one of the things that helps both of us feel fortified and strong is that we are just so supportive of like, okay, this day isn't working for you. You're having a hard one. I've got you here. And we jump in and out and we just pick up where we left off. So in the spirit of, you know, sharing information about support and resources regarding mental transparency. health. <laughs> transparency, we don't have it all together. And we're trying to use our resources and do the best we can. So we're hopping back into this episode and we'll just continue with another question from our audience. Keish, do you want yes. to get started on that? Yes, I do. And I do want to, I want to take a quick second because I think this point of us having to start and stop really does speak to the last question we answered, which was really about time management with workload self-care, family, and just not feeling guilty on where you spend your free time or or any of your time. I just saw something recently that Brene Brown had posted, and we're big Brene Brown fans over here. Brene, if you're listening, please come be on our show. But <laughs> she's, she's talking about partnerships specifically between her and her husband and about feeling mentally drained. 
And she said one of the ways that it works is that her and her husband never come to the table saying it's 50-50 because it's never 50-50. She said there are some days where it's 20-80 or somebody shows up and they say, I just, I have 25% in me. And the other person either has to say, you know, I can cover that for you. I can cover that 75%. We'll get us through the rest of the day. Or if they only have 30%, then they have to figure out where the split is. And that's how they make it work. Yeah. And I really like that because I think it's a good way to look at marriages and relationships. It's also a great way to look at any other type of relationship, just like the working one that Asha and I have. Totally. So funny you mentioned that because I literally, I know the exact clip that you're talking about. I <laughs> forwarded it to Andrew, my husband, because I'm like, that's, it's so true. I feel like having the, just the comfort in some relationships to, to just be vulnerable and be like, I'm at a 20% right now. And it's like, sometimes we're both going to be at 20%, but at least like acknowledging like, hey, we're both hurting right now. We can keep that in mind if we're short with one another, if we're maybe not like firing on all cylinders or we say something we don't mean with the acknowledgement and the freedom to be like able to share that you're not at your 100%, it kind of creates some grace in your relationships, which I think is the foundation for all healing. I love that. Go find that clip from Brene. (laughs) Maybe we can link it too. Yes, I love that. So one of the questions we got asked was how to approach others in need of help, especially men. This particular person asking the question said they feel like men suffer more in not wanting to reach out. I kind of want to flip this on its head because I do agree that in certain situations, men have been, a lot of men have been raised to feel very, very stoic. But I want to also just talk about this in terms, not necessarily of gender divides or gender roles, but just more so personalities. Because, for example, my mother is one of the strongest women I know, but she's also very much the type of person who, if she's feeling upset or anxious or feeling like she needs to reach out, she generally turns inward and has a very, very hard time reaching out for help. And I think it's just, it's this survival mechanism. I think this is a great question because in my experience, there are moments where I've been the person that has a really hard time reaching out or wanting to ask for help. And I think it's also very readable in my energy. I also have experienced family members and loved ones or friends who don't necessarily, you know, want to talk about something that they're going through, but you can very clearly see that there is something significant going on. One of the things that I think about a lot that I turn to is something that a dear friend, her name is Kim Hamer. She is a woman I used to babysit for. At the time of babysitting, she had recently lost her husband to cancer and he left behind her and his three beautiful kids who were incredibly smart. And, you know, he left this huge hole that that could not be filled. But Kim developed a book called 101 Ways to Help Your Friend with Cancer. I will put a link to it. And one of the things I learned from her through that time of grieving was it didn't necessarily need to be a big, giant action or a big conversation. Sometimes reaching out a hand and meeting that person who's suffering halfway was more, looked more like 
finding something actionable that you could do for them. It was doing their laundry for them or showing up with foods that they didn't have to cook. And then finding these little ways to think about what that person might need or want, whether it's sustenance or an ear or a hug, and then providing that and then giving them the space and the quiet to allow them to approach you. That's something that in my experience has has really been a successful tactic. I also recently heard something, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, Asha, but someone said, Honestly, I wish I could remember where I heard this, but there's so much content now that it's hard to source it. This is not original to me, is my point. But somebody said, if you see somebody hurting or you see somebody in the middle of a struggle, you ask them, do you want a solution? Do you want an ear to listen to? Or do you just want a hug? It's like you give them three options. And in that way, you very clearly are saying like, do you want me to offer you a way to fix this? Or are you really just looking for support? Because sometimes people are just looking for like a hug or just to know that they're not alone or they really do want a fix. Totally. I think that is such a great point. And I was literally thinking the same thing. And I think there's a lot more conversation about this, like how to approach someone in need. And and people are talking about that, like giving the person options, asking like, how can I be helpful to you? And then going forward and saying like the options that you can help with, you know, but do you, do you want to work through solutions? Do you want to break this open? Do you just want me to listen? Or do you just want to sit together? You know, are you not ready to talk about this? And I think that, um, you know, subliminally even that, that tells the person, like it kind of puts them in the driver's seat. It empowers them potentially in a time when they don't necessarily feel very empowered with options versus, you know, I, th- I think that when you're really going through something, even if it's well-intentioned, if, if someone just comes at you right away with like, I'm going to fix this for you because it's well-intended, you know, someone, especially those we really love or those that are particularly vulnerable, we want to take the load off and fix something for our loved ones. But that can actually feel just really even more overwhelming for someone that's not quite ready to dive into workshopping a problem. Another point I wanted to make where I was actually sourcing this um, from an, a research article on discovery mood, I can link, but it was talking about um, helping teens in difficult situations. And a great point that they made was about the consistency of support. Just because you reach out to a friend and, you, you know, and it can be with an observation, like I could be wrong, but I've noticed you seem like you're a little bit down, you know, and not your normal self. And I love you. So I want to make sure, you know, I'm here for you. So you approach them. But then also, like, if they shut you down and they're like, no, I'm fine, you know, and you're still like, God, I think there's something there. Just because they weren't ready to have you there with them in that moment doesn't mean that, like, you're reaching out again still wouldn't be helpful. Like, consistency of support and just letting someone know, like, coming back in, in a week if that, that person is still seeming that way. Just being like, I want you to know when you're ready, if you're ready, I'm here to support you, however is best for you. And just being there, that consistency of support really can help someone in their healing process. Completely agree. Next question, coping mechanisms that work for you because everybody's different. You want to take this one away, Ashi? I mean, there's so many. Keisha and I share that we are... um, 
we like to kind of approach ourselves as experiments. We're open to trying a lot of things. We're curious about ourselves and how we work. Um, so we've tried a lot of different coping mechanisms. But I will say that, it kind of, you know, it depends on the scenario. In certain cases, like when I was feeling postpartum anxiety, you know, you try all these mechanisms and stuff and it sometimes they just don't work. They don't feel like they're working. Um, if you're going through something, especially if it's kind of like chemically or hormonally driven, also don't be discouraged if you feel like you're trying everything. You're like, I tried yoga. I tried walking. I tried drinking the tea. I tried meditating and like nothing seems to work. There's something there that will benefit you. So don't get down if it feels like you're trying coping mechanisms or if any of the things that we suggest you're just like, nope, nope, tried it. <laughs> you know, there's still a solution. <laughs> when I've been in places where I really felt like, you know, none of my normal things, like going for a walk, if I'm feeling really not myself or mo moving my body is like a big one. I think that you and I mm -hmm. share, um, like just changing my physicality often, take a shower, you know, just change what my body's doing always helps. But if those things aren't really helping me, if talking to a trusted friend isn't helping me, in those moments, definitely. I mean, we said it earlier in last episode, but like seeking professional help, talking with a therapist has been a really excellent coping mechanism that now, because it's in my toolbox, I don't need it all the time, but I do know there's a time in place for it at times when other things don't seem to be helping. Yeah. Yeah. I completely, completely agree. I want to be really transparent and say there's so many coping mechanisms that I've tried. Ranging from little to, you know, like the big guns. And so I would say like at the the deepest, hardest times of my life, medication has helped. It's not for everybody. I don't suggest it unless you've been properly evaluated and, um, you know, you have a doctor prescribing it. Um, but that being said, there is a time and place for it. And I think it can be really, really helpful in helping, you know, biohack those moments where your serotonin levels might be a little too low and you've entered that like vicious cycle, which does happen. Clearly, anxiety and depression is a real thing. And, you know, we've seen it with people like Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams and just a lot of people who are lost way too soon, way too early um, from something like mental health issues. So that's one. And the other thing with medication that I just want to say as an aside in my personal experience and as a healthcare provider and as an individual, like medication, being on it doesn't mean you have to be on it for forever and, and it's your choice. So use it as a tool if it might work for you and, and don't if you don't think so. So that being said, I also love therapy. Talk therapy is incredible. I think finding a safe space is a really important thing to do if you can do it. Some other things that I really enjoy, like Asha said, physicality is a huge thing. So if I'm laying down and I'm sedentary, forcing myself to get up to go for a walk or to take a shower or to do a workout, even if it's just literally on the floor next to my bed, just getting that movement in starts helping with that release of endorphins. And if I'm really not, like if I'm really in a place where I'm in bed and I don't want to change my physicality, if I need to get myself out of like a mental funk, like if I'm anxious or angry or something's just really catching in my brain, 
sometimes I listen to stand-up. And I think I've talked about this before. It doesn't necessarily have to be stand-up. Sometimes it's just like watching something as silly as like an episode of Impractical Jokers or like a funny clip. I don't mean scrolling on your phone and looking for things on TikTok because I think that could also like lead to more of a spiral. But like intentionally seeking something out that is hilarious can be really a nice way to just break up the emotional like roadblocks because it takes you out of that serious state, whatever form that is, whether it's anger or anxiety or depression. You know, when you see something that makes you really, really laugh or you experience something that makes you really, really laugh, it really is that physical shift of like, oh, haha, and then the endorphins come. And then also it has that added benefit of realizing things might be feel really dark, but at the same time, I can still laugh. I still find this funny. So it seems really silly, but <laughs> it's like honestly, what? it's like we have these things around us that we that we can use. And on on I think sometimes I have a mental checklist, but you could write some of these things down, like and have them at your hand when you're like, okay, I'm hitting kind of a dark moment. I need to switch something up. It's like, okay, we've talked about some of these, like talk therapy, moving your body, watching journaling, honey, journaling. Honestly, that's been such, especially when it's something where it's like a relational problem or something I'm working through stress that I feel out of control of, you know, someone I'm super worried about a life situation that I just feel like I can't fix all by myself just writing it all down. And honestly, a lot of the time it's like you write it down and then just crumple it up and get rid of it, you know, but writing it down gets it out of your head onto a paper. And I often find that once I've written something down and sometimes I'll write it through to like worst case scenario, worst case scenario, you know, and you write it down and it's like you realize like, okay, worst case scenario is very unlikely and probably less terrible than maybe I thought. It's a good way to kind of healthily get outside, you know, your your own thoughts and brain and spiraling and actually see it concrete, you know, things on paper. Journaling, a big one that we did in a lot of our workshops was breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. I think meditation has a stigma around it. Sometimes we feel like, oh, if I'm going to meditate, I have to like sit on the cushion and like play this recording and close my eyes and do the whole thing. But literally like meditation can be as simple as like, I'm just going to like box breathe for 30 seconds. And if you don't know what box breathing is, there's different types of breath work. You can Google, you know, breath work exercises, but box breathing is a really simple one where it's basically like, imagine a box where it's like when you're, your in breath is like the, you know, one side of the box, you're breathing in for four seconds, holding your breath at the top of your breath, counting to four and then exhaling for four seconds. So that's the box coming back down and then holding your breath at the bottom before inhaling again. So you're kind of like just thinking this box of four, however many counts work for you. There's a variety of different exercises you can do that have um, different impacts on your central nervous system. Alternate nostril breathing. Yes, we've done. I love that one as in our workshops. So great. I mean, even just like stretching your body to increase your circulation again, getting up and like just putting on music is a really powerful tool that can totally change our emotions. Like music is so powerful. So if you find kind of like create a playlist for yourself of songs that just totally change your vibe and get up and dance to them by yourself, you know, I really don't like running. I don't like running at all. (laughs) I really don't like like intense cardio that much, but I don't um, either. (laughs) I'll kind of like trick myself into it every once in a while or I'll like use it because I need to get, get something out of my system. But someone told me like, just try next time you're doing like 
cardio or something that like, you don't really want to be doing, just try smiling while you're doing it. You might look like a psycho. Smile <laughs> for like 20 seconds. And before you know it, weirdly smiling itself, the physical muscular movement of smiling has, it triggers it releases it releases happy hormones. Yeah. yeah, and you'll start. That's why they do those like ecstatic laughing. Have you heard of those things? Yeah, where people get together and they laugh and they first it's it's like a forced thing, which is funny because Eden, my toddler, has been doing this. Like she's doing this fake laugh, and I'm like, is she? Is that how I sound when I laugh or something? It's like he goes like, she's like, <laughs> and it sounds so strange. But then I start laughing, and then she thinks it's funny that I'm laughing, and before we know, it, we're both laughing and. I'm like, it started with this like put on laugh. So, you know, there, yeah. are, there are just things that we can do to just, I think the biggest point for coping exercises and, and things you can try to do is that it's just like, shake it up, change something, you know, get into your body. If you can get into your breath, connect with yourself. And there's, there's just a lot of different things you can do. And there's don't be afraid help. to run and look like a psychopath. Like, honestly, honestly, if anything, that, that was another point in this article that I had just cited. Positivity, even if it's just like kind of forced, is super contagious too. Like I did that in a gym. I, I distinctly remember one time I was doing this and someone walked by my treadmill and just like looked at me and then the biggest smile just broke out on their face because I was smiling and they were smiling. And they're like, look at this weird girl. Positivity is so contagious and those little interactions between people, even if it's someone you don't know, like a grocery store teller or something, if you just have one of those positive interactions, it can totally switch your whole day. So I know we kind of like went off on a tangent, but we're passionate about coping mechanisms and building them because I think it's really intimately tied to that self-confidence that we're, um, we're constantly trying to build at Bridget. And I think knowing that you have a toolbox, we have said that word like a million times in this episode, but knowing that you have things that you can go to, that you're powerful, and you have resources and tools within yourself when you need it drives a whole chain reaction. I completely agree. I think this actually addressed another question that we were asked, which was about cultivating a more positive mindset. And I would say that these quote unquote coping mechanisms really tie into that and in that if you're feeling like you're the type of person that's not necessarily positive or you're not a typically optimistic person, I, I know people categorize themselves different ways. If you find that you're not a naturally optimistic person, I would argue that you could use the same exact coping mechanisms to shake things up. And in addition to that, adding on utilizing things like positive affirmations, creating affirmations for how you would like to see yourself or the goals of where you'd like to to be even from a mental health perspective. I think a lot of times we tailor our goal list and our short list to cater to the tangible things, you know, like this is where I want to be in 5 years. This is where I'd like to see my career. This is what I want my resume to look like. I think we have to be just as relentless in the pursuit of our mental health. And we have to be able to catalog those things and set goals for ourselves. So if, you know, you're the type of person that errs on the side of being more anxious, I certainly am. I have to really envision how I would like to be. I really did this before I became a mom because I wasn't sure what life was going to throw my way or how I would handle these challenges. Specifically, the idea of giving birth itself was really scary to me. So when I was preparing myself for that, 
I cataloged the things that I wanted. I wanted a calm birth. I wanted to feel empowered. And so just like I would work toward different goals with my career, I worked toward those things by putting into action those little tips and tricks like breathing exercises, meditation, like writing things down in journaling, really envisioning myself in that space. What do you think, Ashi? I mean, I think that kind of labeled myself as a positive person. I'm not 100% positive all the time, but I think that I have put into practice certain things that I know keep my baseline in the positive, in the green, you know? And I think those things are a daily and moment by moment practice of gratitude, which doesn't mean endlessly grateful in every moment. However, when I'm having a time where I just feel stuck, like that stuck feeling, I do this thing, one good thing. And no matter what I'm in, you know, if there's like, I'm just feeling overwhelmed or whatever, I just stop. I'm like, in this moment, what is one good thing? And I can, you can always find one good thing. Honestly, even in the shit, shit of moments, like, it's like when it rains, it pours and like everything is falling apart. There's always one good thing. I'm like, well, I got eyes that see. Sometimes it's as simple as that, where it's like, I got two legs and I can go for a walk to, and I can breathe. I have lungs that work. Like sometimes it's that basic and that feels like the only good thing, but there's always one good thing. And I think that in times when I have felt that kind of stuckness or I'm when I get really anxious, when I start feeling like uh, I'm spiraling, it's usually because a lot of my energy is being redirected to myself, that there's this, this kind of internal cycle going on and not enough of my energy is is reaching out and connecting with others or focusing on others and breaking up that cycle of just like you know the churn that you kind of get when you're just like attacking yourself and self-criticism and you know overthinking and stuff so I think that another really great coping mechanism and a recipe for positivity is finding places to be of service you know, this, I love that like traditional volunteering somewhere or working with a charity or something, but it can also be as simple as like, you know, just being aware of like the people around you. Like, is there someone, like we were saying, is there someone in your life that you could just call, you know, and be like, how are you doing? Like, I was just thinking about you. Like, how, how is life with you? I just want to listen. I love getting outside yourself, like just redirecting the energy I actually kind of learned this in acting school a long time ago that a great way to like not feel self-conscious is to focus less on you and your own performance, but more on your target. Like what is it that your character wants? And your focus is that like the second you re- start thinking about how you are actually acting or behaving, it kills it, you know? And I, I put that into use when we do public speaking stuff too. Instead of standing up and being like, how am I going to do? Are they going to like me, 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 you know? And focusing on myself, mm-hmm. but rather being like, who is my audience and why do they have to know what I'm about to tell them? Like, what is my goal? How do I want them to change before and after, you know, I impart this this really valuable information? Taking that energy away from the self and putting it somewhere else, I think, is the biggest thing that has driven a positive mindset for me. Like, finding the one good thing and getting outside myself. Love that so much. And I'm laughing a little bit because this is where you see the the small differences between Asha and I where like you are just such a positive person 
Whereas I'm like, how can I not burn it all down today? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how do I turn this around? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because people are like, oh, you're you're just so positive. I'm like, if you only knew, like, the majority yeah. of my thought, like, I'm the person, I'm an overthinker, I'm an overpreparer, I'm the kind of person that like imagines every possible thing that could go wrong, and then. Like you have have to go through that whole journey internally. So a lot of it is like not expressed to other people. But then I've just found that it's like, well, that is how I think. That's how I do. But like, I have to find ways to like stop that thought pattern, you know, and just move forward. Otherwise, I'm just going to be stuck in this endless analysis paralysis, you know, which is literally a daily struggle. It's a daily. I love that. I do the same thing. And I guess it's it's from a slightly different angle, which is why it's so funny, because my version of this, which is, it's really similar at the end of the day. But my version is starts out as, what's the worst case scenario? Like, let me think about the worst possible thing yeah. that could happen in this situation. And then when I arrive at that scenario, I'm like, okay, that the likelihood of that happening is really low. But if that's the worst case scenario, if it's that I like fall out of my face and then they laugh for a little while, like, then the good news is is that content is so viral that there's going to be another thing five seconds later. And so, you know, you go down that pathway and and usually I arrive at the same thing. It's like, I'm grateful for that, you know, the likelihood being so small and for that like good thing on the other side of it. I also love how you talk about focusing on something outside of yourself, on people outside of yourself and focusing on connection because I really do think, and this is natural, but I do think we all have like a tiny narcissist inside of all of us. Like it's innate and we have to be, right? Like you're number one. Like you need to make sure that you're fed, that you have shelter, yeah, that you survival. have, you know, your your baseline needs. So that is what I'm talking about when I say there's a tiny narcissist. When you let that tiny narcissist take over and like think about things, and I'm not talking about thinking that you're great, like this isn't a matter of being conceited or self-absorbed, but what I mean when I say tiny narcissist is like, okay, well now that part of you is taking over, like the the part that's worrying so deeply, like you're talking about Asha, about yourself and your performance or how other people are going to perceive you. You forget that you are one of those outside people to the other person, that there's this whole other vantage point and that you're just one small piece of this big, huge puzzle. We can get so caught up with like how we think other people are going to perceive us. We get so caught up in that, but then you realize it's like everybody's thinking like that. Everybody's focused on themselves. So it's like no one really cares. Like if you make Mm -hmm. it, you know, if you fail, like everybody's failing, you know, like no one's so focused on you. And if they are, they don't have that much going on in their own lives. Like that's, it's irrelevant to you, you know? So I think just like remembering when you're second guessing or you're having self-doubt or self-criticism or you're thinking what other people are going to think about you, just remember like no one's really thinking about you that much. It's truly, (laughs) no, seriously. And the people, the people that are, it's truly reflective of them not being in a stable place because you only, you only look toward other people and you only look you know, for the bad in other people, if you're really trying to fill something in yourself. I mean, if you put yourself in those shoes, like you'll see pretty quickly that that's a true statement. But yeah, I mean, focus on 
exuding positive energy and being of service to other people and connecting with other people. I think that connection piece is is really important. I mean, if you're lucky and you have family and a stable foundation, then you can start there. Or, you know, look to friends and coworkers and build build small relationships. You don't need like a whole huge like cheerleading squad, but you know, find somebody that you can connect with and go from there. Yeah. Well, and I think the more that you, you know, you're aware of, obviously, is I feel like we're kind of saying two different things like, oh, don't be so fixated on what other people think. True. But mm-hmm. I think focusing on what other people are experiencing and having compassion yes. and, you know, just kind of like relating. I think that the more that you're sort of aware of like what's going on with other people, what they're going through, you realize I'm like, there are terrible things happening to people all day, every day, you know, and, and you can, you'll see them, you know, especially as we get older, it's like you witness a car accident on the side of the road. And it's like having that moment where it's like, damn, like, you know, I'm having a hard day, but like that person is having a way harder day, you know, and I, I'm sending love, prayer, whatever it is to them. It kind of just puts whatever you're going through in perspective. Like, I hate to be like, oh, like there's always worse, you know, using someone else's pain to like lift yourself up. But knowing that whatever you're going through, like there are people suffering in all different ways all over the world, you know, and that's really just like that human experience. Yeah. If you also want to think about it from a different vantage point, it's kind of like thinking about a paper cut versus like a gash, right? Like you can even apply it to yourself. When you're having a bad day, is this the worst day I've ever had in my life? No, probably falls somewhere in the middle. And if it is, think about the best day you've ever had in your life because that's probably going to happen again. Yeah. Life happens in cycles. And so there's always a way to juxtapose things, not necessarily to be judgmental or to take part in schadenfreude or anything like that, but more, more so just to put into perspective your experience. Totally. Another, I think the, this was the last question we'll, um, we'll take for this episode, but another question was about any unique challenges that we personally have gone through and how we've kind of like gotten over obstacles regarding our mental health um, as we were entering adulthood. So firstly, that transition into adulthood is long and arduous and never ending, it feels like you know, because you don't grow out of yourself. It's just like all of a sudden you look down and you're like, oh, I'm married and I have a kid and all this stuff happened. And yeah, I'm an adult, but life just kind of happens upon itself. So that's the first thing. But that transition from like high school to college to not being in college anymore, like let's just talk about that. That is a really difficult time because for most people experiencing it, you're experiencing it between the ages of like 16 and 22. And it's a time developmentally when you're shifting, right? You, Your priorities biologically go from figuring out where you fit into your group of peers to trying to figure out who you are as an individual. And I think that that shift in mindset from childhood or teenage years into adulthood can really be difficult a lot of the times for people because you're, you go from sort of understanding yourself a certain way to all of a sudden realizing like now you're going to live life as a, an adult person. Like you won't necessarily be living at home. You won't necessarily be a dependent of your parents. 
And there's a lot of scenarios in the in between. Some people live with their parents until they're like in their 30s, and that's that's fine. But a lot of others don't. So I think it's just a difficult time because everything's shifting. And I think this is really where those coping mechanisms come into play. For me specifically, I was struggling a lot. And I think, you know, for those of you who haven't listened to season one, we really dive into Asha's and my individual stories, those transitions from our teen years into young adulthood. And I I would love for you all to go back and listen to those because we really dive into the nitty gritty. But as as a very quick brief caption to that, I went through a huge transition of trying to figure out who I was. I was trying to understand my biological father's place in my life, like my grandfather was passing away. I had a tumultuous relationship that probably should have never happened that was changing seasons. And I have a very supportive family, but as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I usually, you know, would turn inwards and try and figure things out myself first. So to really speak to Asha's point, the shift started happening for me when I started to come out of my shell and lean more on my family and friends to help me out of those spaces. That's really when those challenges started to become better because I had a community around me and I started to build the confidence within myself to step forward into new situations that were better situations for me. Go back and listen to my episode. It's a really long and crazy story that we don't necessarily have time to get into with this question. That's how I dealt with that transition. Yeah. I mean, I think that I could pinpoint like a handful of really like uncomfortable moments. You know, I think the big one in my story, I think the biggest one of like, you know, like I'm on the floor, like this is what a floor feels like was like the day I found out about my thyroid cancer diagnosis. You know, hearing the C word is just like a very unique experience that a lot of people unfortunately go through. But that was like one of those moments where I was just like, nope, I got a lot of like one good things. And I'm like, I'm having a hard time finding this one. But I think the immediate things that helped me like in that moment when I found out I was with my husband, you know, and and he was a critical support throughout that process. Actually, he was my fiance at the time. We had just gotten engaged to the extent that I was like, you can call it off. Like if you don't want to marry someone with cancer, it's like, no, I was, I was at a really low place to that extent, but I was with him and I vividly remember talking with my mom was very supportive at that time because you know, I thought she would get really emotional with me and stuff, but she was very like, okay, well, what's, what's the next thing we have to do? What's the next thing? What's the next step? And she kind of shifted me out of this like really dark hole of a place. And I got really into being my own advocate. So I had these lists of like, these are the steps of treating it. And these, okay, I'm going to interview this many doctors. This is, I wrote it all down. So things suddenly were outside of just like this me, me, me energy. And it was like, okay, no, like I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the tools. Um, So that was one transition is kind of like, okay, let's break this down into a list of steps and one thing at a time. What is the next thing in front of me? And we're just one foot in front of the other through treatment. The thing that kind of got me emotionally through it and able to find that one good thing and actually many good things that came out of that was in connecting to the community of people that, you know, had gone through it before me 
and that we're going through it behind me. And it's, you know, I look back and it's like, while I would be nice to have not had cancer, I also think it's a critical part of my story. And I've been able to help countless people now by being vulnerable. And I think that um, it's a good place for us to like cap this episode on because Keish and I share this belief that vulnerability is really the key to all connection, vulnerability and communication of that vulnerability because being able to acknowledge like, hey, I'm struggling, you know, and I need help (laughs) and communicating that to someone else. You never know, like that humanity and someone else seeing that in you, it creates such a great foundation for, for connection and community. And that's really what we're all about. So with that, (laughs) I think we're going to have to do more of these Q&As because a lot of these great questions keep pouring in and, you know, there's no shortage of them and we love sharing our experiences. Again, these are just tools for your toolbox. (laughs) This is, that's the the saying of this two-part episode, but it's really true. You know, there's no perfect answer. There's no one size fits all. Mental health is a, you know, it's a practice. It's not a project. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that you've got to work on just as hard as you work on other aspects of your physical health. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us, for being a part of our community, for accepting our vulnerability and listening to our stories. We really love being here. We really appreciate all of you and keep those questions rolling in because we're definitely going to do more of these. Yes. Until next time. Bye. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?